Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Passages of Summer edition of the 7 a.m. Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel, short story, essay, memoir are really hard to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, we hear from Aaron Hamburger, who is going to share the first pages of his latest novel, Hotel Cuba, which was just released in May. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being on the show. Aaron Hamburger is the author of the novel Nirvana is Here, winner of a bronze medal from the 2019 Forward Reviews Indie Awards. His story collection, The The View from Stalin's Head, which again is a title I absolutely love, I'm going to say it again. The View from Stalin's Head was awarded the Rome Prize by the American Academy of Arts and Letters and nominated for the Violet Quill Award. And his novel Faith for Beginners was nominated for the Lambda Literary Award. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, Oprah Magazine, and many, many other venues. Also, he just told me that he received word that he has won the Lambda Literary Jim Duggan's Outstanding Mid-Career Novelist Prize, which I was very excited about because mid-career novelists need as much help as they possibly can get. So it's <laughs> wonderful that he has gotten that and that such an award exists. Um, Aaron also has taught creative writing at Columbia University, George Washington University, New York University, Brooklyn College, and the Stone Coast MFA program. Okay, Aaron, can you give us a review of your book, your newest Hotel Cuba, so that we can have a a kind of sense of where we're going in these first pages when we talk about them? Absolutely. So Hotel Cuba features two sisters, uh, Pearl and Frida. Think Sense and Sensibility. Pearl is sensible, straightforward, logical, and her younger sister, Frida, is more love-struck and impulsive. They are fleeing the chaos of Russia after World War I and the Soviet Revolution. They're desperate to join their sister in New York, but new discriminatory immigration laws in the U.S. bar their entry. And so instead, the two sisters go to, of all places, Havana, Cuba. And this is during the time of prohibition when American tourists are flooding the island to get drunk and get wild. So it's about sort of the intense uh, culture clash uh, that happens uh, as Pearl experiences this new world. That's incredible. Yeah, completely. You know, people that are are desperate to make a new life, um, they probably bring very little with them. And then people that have no cares at all um, coming together on the small island in the small place. That's perfect. Did you so how did you discover that? combination or that time period or 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 how did you run into that to to launch this book so the novel is based on the true story of my grandmother who had this exact experience <clears throat> and she spent about 6 months in cuba and then she saved every cent she had to pay an american couple to pretend that she was their daughter and they were going to smuggle her to key west but the second she got off the boat at key west a man with a uniform pointed to her and said, halt, and she was immediately arrested. Her case was investigated to see if she was involved in human trafficking, and eventually she was deported back to Havana, Cuba, without a cent to her name. So the book is based on that true story and then fleshes it out and tries to imagine how she got out of that predicament. 
You know, it's it's all these awful things that happen to our ancestors. They're so awful, but they make such good fiction. It's true. <laughs> it, was she more like Pearl or more like Frida? Pearl, 100% like Pearl. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and we're very lucky uh, in my family. And I, I recommend everybody do this. You know, if you have ancestors who have uh, immigrated from somewhere, uh, my brothers recorded about seven hours of interviews with my grandparents about their immigration stories. Um, so, and my, my grandfather, who also figures as a character in the novel, uh, you know, so we have about like six and a half hours of those seven hours is his story. And then about half an hour is my grandmother's story. And, you know, she was a woman of what I would say few, but emphatic words. Mm. And she gave me the broad outlines of her story. Um, and so I knew sort of the basic outlines of the, the what and the where, but as a novelist, I'm always wanting to know, what did you think of the food? How did you learn the language? How did the weather strike you after coming from this wintry, landlocked, very isolated little Russian shtetl to Havana, Cuba with the music and, you know, the Santeria and you know everything there, just so different from what she had come from. Uh, so I set out to imagine the answers to that question. And it's so I've also written both my novels were um, spinning off of family stories, being having some things that you don't know, having quite a lot that you don't know is kind of a gift as well, because otherwise you can get really locked in to what actually happened. You know, so many people have said to me, um, you know, why don't you tell your grandfather's story? And one of the things that was interesting to me was that I knew like the key facts of my grandmother's story, but not all the little details of it. And that gave me license and creative freedom as a writer to be able to then fill it in with things that I wanted. And then as I started diving into the research about the period and I traveled to Havana, I went to Key West, I went to the National Archives and, you know, did a ton of reading and interviewing. I was able to incorporate different little nuggets from other sources to just make it a better story because ultimately as a fiction writer, I can't be locked into the literal truth of what happened if it doesn't serve the story. And so while uh, most of the book follows a lot of what happened to my grandmother, there are points of departure where, you know, just to serve the dramatic, you know, needs of the story, I did um, play with things or add things or change things. Right. And that's the mark of a true novelist and fiction writer. Yeah. Um, so you have traveled to Havana. I was going to ask that. How important do you think it is for writers to travel to the places that they're writing about? If at all possible, I, I highly recommend it. Now, of course, you know, our, our writers who are writing, you know, uh, uh, like Harry Potter, you know, they can't go to Hogwarts or if they're writing it'd be The Martian, they can't go to Mars. Um, so intense research, I think, is always a, a good uh, yeah. backup. But, you know, it's interesting because in a way, writing historical fiction is a little like writing science fiction or writing about the future because you're writing about a different time period. So when I went to Havana, you know, of course, my eyes were peeled for anything that was older than 1922, which is the year yeah. that this book is set. Um, but I was also really just paying close attention to the quality of the light and the air and the weather and the flowers and uh, the streets and, you know, just, just anything that could give me the sense of atmosphere of the place. Yeah. Um, and, and even, you know, the, the people, even though the people who are living there today are not the same people who lived there in 1922, there's still some sense of, you know, what Cuban culture is like and what, um, 
you know, what kinds of things people are interested in or how they, you know, interact on the street that, that, you know, give me, they give me a starting point. And then I go and I do my research and my homework and I try to figure out, okay, in the 1920s, would people have been doing these same sorts of things? Um, and then, you know, just talking to people, we had this wonderful um, guide who was telling me stories about her grandmother and uh, memories of the past. And those really helped to inform uh, my project. So right. absolutely, if you can at all go, I would definitely recommend going. It is difficult though for historical novelists because, well, so I was going to set a part of my second novel in Cleveland. And mm -hmm. when I went there, I realized, I decided that I actually couldn't set that part of the novel in Cleveland because I couldn't get a good sense of it because it had changed so much. All the tenement houses that my characters would have lived in, um, the, um, the workhouses where they would have worked in, it was just all that, that, that area has been so built up and changed in Cleveland that even it felt like the air had was totally different than what I really needed. Mm. Um, so I put it in Chicago instead. Um, did you have any problems with that? It sounds like with Havana that you were able to imagine beyond whatever um, changes had happened um, to the city in order to, to get back to that time period. Yeah, well, I, I did a ton of research, you know, I read and I read and I read and then I went through the bibliographies of the books that I read and found more books to read. And then I also looked at um, old movies and I looked at advertising and I, I just, you know, I just looked at anything that I could find. I listened to the music of the time period, um, you know. The top song in the United States at this time was I'll See You in Cuba by Irving Berlin. And the gist of the song is it's illegal to get drunk in the United States. So let's go to Cuba and get drunk there. So <laughs> it really gave me a sense of like what was going on at the time. There were so many Americans going to Cuba for alcohol tourism. And so what that was doing, not just for the Americans, but also for the Cubans. And then these immigrants who are coming in, in the middle of all of this. Um, so, and then also it was interesting to me that, um, Cuba, uh, during world war one, it was a real boom time for Cuba because sugar prices just went through the roof because of the war. Mm -hmm. But as soon as the war ended, sugar prices tanked. So it, it was, uh, it was actually in an economic depression by the time my grandmother got there. So that sort of boom and bust thing was very interesting to think about being in the background of what my grandmother was wading into. Um, there was this one thing that I read that there are all these ships docked in Havana Harbor filled with all these luxury goods that these overnight millionaires had ordered. But by the time they arrived, they could no longer afford to pay for them. Yeah. And they were sitting in the harbor waiting, you know, for somebody who could pay for them. And it was so bad that like ships were docking, like not at the docks, but like in the middle of the harbor because there's no more space. Yeah. So it just gave me a sense of like, okay, well, a city like that, people would be pretty desperate. You know, people, a lot of people would be at the end of their rope. And so that makes a lot of things happen that might not otherwise happen. So that was another way, I think, of, of getting at what was it like to be there at that time. And I think that's the gift of historical fiction. You can do this in other forms, of course, but having that context um, having that backstory against your front story just offers a, an interesting tension that you can use um, and probably takes the book in, in directions that you hadn't normally planned. Um, totally. Totally. Yeah, love it. Okay, I need to hear your first pages. I realize we could just keep talking, but. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Page one. 
Hotel Cuba. And, uh, you know, it was interesting. I actually went back and I found the earliest draft I could find of the novel uh, on my computer. And the um, the very opening sentence is exactly the same. Really? So. But your opening sentence is a fragment. Fish and yep. orange. Was it that? Yes. yes. <laughs> Start in the same that place. Works. Excellent. Here we go. Fish and oranges. A salty sea of soup dotted with islands of potato chunks that Pearl can mash flat with the back of a spoon. Bread so dry, when she dunks it into her lukewarm soup, the stubborn roll remains firm. But Pearl can be stubborn too. She continues dunking the roll until it softens and melts into a paste. It's depressing, the food on this boat they call SS Hudson, heavy on salt and light on pepper, parsley, or any herb to give it character, like the shaggy dill in her yard back in Russia, or what used to be Russia, because this year, 1922, their town belongs to Poland. After a good rain, those dill stalks grow so high they collapse under their own weight. Starving blue-eyed soldiers from the Tsar's army used to pull them out by the roots, mistaking them for carrots, then fling them to the ground. Eat, says Pearl, offering an orange to her younger sister, Frida, sitting with her eyes closed and squeezing her temples, or save it for later. Don't bother, says Frida. I won't eat it then either. You can't starve all the way to Cuba. Maybe Pearl sounds more like a nagging mother than a sister, but she quit worrying about her own vanity years ago when Mama died after giving birth to Frida. Though Pearl was only nine then, People already called her old lady, housewife, empress of the kitchen, madam, singer, sewing machine. What will they call her in Havana, where no one knows her and she has no history? She might be anything. It's a thrilling, terrifying thought. Before the war, a girl from their village who'd emigrated to America returned to visit as a rich lady. Some women laughed behind her back, mimicked her proud walk, lifted their hair to imitate her short haircut and called her new woman as an insult. But Pearl didn't laugh. Maybe someday she too would become a kind of new woman, like this shtetl girl who transformed into a prosperous American lady who could coolly afford, afford to ignore the other's jokes as if she didn't hear. Now there was freedom. Frida, who's in one of her states, won't eat no matter what Pearl says. Arguing with her is like trying to empty the ocean with a spoon. So Pearl returns to her own soup. Tomorrow, she'll eat the next soup, and then the one after that, and the one after that. In this way, always looking forward, never back, she and this creaking boat will slowly cross the Atlantic, leaving Europe behind. When Pearl finishes her bowl, she's still hungry. She has long been cursed with a healthy appetite. Her solid, sturdy figure bulges in the wrong places for a woman who loves dainty clothes, loves looking at them and making them. Before the Great War, when people cared what they looked like, Jews and Gentiles alike paid her to make dresses sewn with fine stitches you'd need a magnifying glass to see. For each dress she made, Pearl imagined a story, the potential to put on a new outfit and become a new person. But sadly, clothes never fit her as beautifully as they do slender Frida, who even before the boat often forgot to eat. Pearl has never forgotten to eat in her life. During the worst of the Great War and then the Revolution and 
war with Poland after, her hunger was so raw it addled her thoughts, gnawed at her stomach lining. On the SS Hudson, many passengers are seasick like Frida. Pearl squeezes sideways between tables, casually skims stray peas and carrot knobs from abandoned bowls of soup, scrounges a section of orange, a scrap of pinkish brown herring. A willowy lady wearing a dusty pink hat watches her at work, out of pity or disgust. She's a sophisticated city type. Jews are so desperate to leave Europe these days, they cross the ocean in a bathtub. So Pearl sees many grand people like her mixed with country folk in steerage. The lady has a long, lovely face, pale with a pointed chin and shrewd gray-green eyes like a cat. Pearl noticed her when she came into the dining room on the arm of a young man who pulled out a chair for her. She stepped forward and sat, didn't even look behind her, confident the chair would be pushed in again. And it was. Pearl imagines what it would be like to have that kind of confidence, to sit into air and know that a seat would appear below you. And that hat, it fires up her imagination. If Pearl could afford to wear a fancy pink hat like that, she would walk down the street with such a cold, blank stare that no one would dare bother her. She's known plenty of women who aren't strictly beautiful, but in the right hat or dress, they're magnificent. Their clothes teach the world to treat them with dignity. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you so much for reading that. Yeah. We get into this world so quickly. You know what it reminds me of? One of my favorite novels is William Trevor's uh, Felicia's Journey. And in terms of, yeah, incredible writer, but the novel begins where she's already moving. I think, and I think she's also on a boat though. It's a much shorter trip from, um, where is she? But from um, Ireland to England. Um, And, and yet, um, and then we get the little blips of backstory worked in as we're moving forward. And you're doing the exact same thing and just as well. I mean, we get the time period here. You talk about, you know, 1922 um, Russia, their town belongs to Poland. It's interesting. You don't even give us a timestamp. I kind of like having it in the text of the narrative itself. So I'm not always looking up to see oh, what date was yeah. You know? I'm mathematically challenged. So when people give me those timestamps, I'm always like, wait, what? You know, I have to do the math. It's too complicated. So I try to like really weave it into the text. Yes. Well, and I'm an, I'm a daughter of an accounting family and even I get annoyed. I'm like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to look back and figure out how many days later it is. I want it in the text. Um so fish and oranges, you said you looked back at an original and that was your first, and I'm assuming your first line was longer than that, that involved also the soup? Uh, no, the, the very first sentence really of my was- first draft, fish and oranges. I knew that was immediately where I wanted to begin. And, um, you know, so it's interesting. I just did this exercise with one of my creative writing classes where we looked at first sentences of novels and stories. We were trying to figure out like which ones are grabbing our attention and, and how are, how is the writer trying to grab our mm-hmm. attention? Um, and so one of the things that I think is interesting is that, you know, in, in the year 2023, probably we've all read stories and novels at this point. So we're used to this idea that there's going to be a first sentence that's going to try to like grab our attention. So it's no longer the, the age of Jane Austen, where it's like, you know, a man, a single man with a fortune looking for a wife or Emma Woodhouse has all these advantages, had very little to affect, you know, 
like like we, we're sort of conditioned to that kind of sentence. So to me, it's kind of an interesting um, going against the grain by starting off with this fragment and starting off with something that appeals to the five senses. I'm a tremendous believer in the five senses. I always do five senses revisions of whatever I write. So I do a smell revision, a taste revision, a sound revision, you know, all the, whatever, whatever the five senses are. Um, and I remember my grandfather talking about his journey over on the boat and the importance of food that so many people, first of all, were seasick. And a lot of people were starving. There was an intense famine that happened in uh, Russia during this period, mm -hmm. which was exacerbated by the fact that the Russian Revolution uh, and World War I blew up all the infrastructure so that the trains literally couldn't move the grain from the ports into the rural areas. So, you know, someone like my grandfather coming from a rural area where there was no food, he was starving, he gets on this boat and he can have as much food as he wants. And the food that's available is fish and oranges, you know, the fish because it's readily available yeah. and the, the oranges and the vitamin C to prevent scurvy. But a lot of people are so seasick, they can't take advantage of this food. They're just throwing up, you know, the, the boat journey across the North Atlantic is really rough. You know, yeah. those waves, some of those waves are just incredible and people are thrown from their beds. I mean, it's just, it's just a horrible journey. Um, but my grandfather had this stomach of iron and I imagine my grandmother too, having this stomach of iron. So just seeing like how these characters, in this case, the character of Pearl is sort of dealing with this problem of food, you know, and how the other people around her are dealing with it. It sets her apart. It already sets up like the kind of person that she is. And you know that she's a survivor and maybe a quiet survivor at first, but she, she's going to do what it takes to, to uh, make it in this world. And it's interesting. If you're not feeling well on a boat, you, you, you don't want to smell either fish <laughs> or oranges. <laughs> like either one will make it worse. Because And those two do not, like if it were fish and lemons, maybe, but fish and oranges do not work well together. There's a distance. Right. So there's something right. off already. There's a um, mystery already in that first sentence. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. interesting. And this might be a little too like making up stuff, but you've also, so they just seem to oppose each other. And then you've got these opposing sisters personalities. Mm -hmm. um, did you always have the sisters um, from the beginning um, as you were writing or because you, you started with your grandmother? Did you always have that second sister? Yes, uh, because my grandmother came over with her sister. So that part was was true. They both went to Cuba together. Um, and then I, I once had an agent who told me, you should write a Jewish Jane Austen story. And I always thought, that sounds great, but how would I do that? And then as I uh, embarked on this project, I realized this is kind of a, a version of sense and sensibility. And that really helped me to kind of track the plot, this idea that there's these, these two young women one is more you know, sensible and the other one is more romantic. Um, and part of the reason that Pearl's sister wants to get to America is that her boyfriend from home has already made it to America and she wants to join him. And they have this sort of on again, off again engagement. But part of the implicit promise of the engagement is like, if you can't get to America, the engagement is off. So, and Pearl is like, what kind of guy is this? Like, like, please, like, don't get together with this guy. And Pearl is hoping, boy, if you could get to America, maybe you get your head straight a little bit and like grow up and be more mature and not so romantic and like find somebody better than this guy. So she wants to get them to America, but for a different reason. So, um, yeah, I think, I think those, 
the, the complexity of that of, of the journey and the the different um the character traits of these two women who by the way it's interesting they're leaving everything and everyone they know behind and in 1922 that means most likely never to see them again mm -hmm. so family is gone the only family is each other imagine how much pressure that puts on a relationship um, yeah. and indeed in real life it, it broke that relationship Oh, that's sad to hear. But it's yeah. interesting here. I mean, they really work quite as foils to each other, which helps you establish who they are very, very quickly mm -hmm. uh, because they work in opposition together. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that, and then as you were talking about, okay, they they're leaving behind everything. They're leaving behind family. But for Pearl, this is, she can be anyone in anything without that history. You have that line, what will they call her in Havana where no one knows her and she has no history. She might be anything. It's a thrilling, terrifying thought. And then she talks about becoming a kind of new woman, which is wonderful because you get her yearning right up front. Mm -hmm. And we know that that's just going to be um, followed throughout the whole book. It's you, you can just continue to, did you have that originally? Did you know, okay, this is Pearl and this is what she's yearning for from the very beginning. So this was one of the things that through the editing process really came out. And uh, my editor at Harper Perennial, Sarah Stein is wonderful. She really um, helped me to kind of articulate like really kind of precisely what is it that Pearl wants from getting to America? Like in my mind is always, well, survival, you know, get away from those Cossacks, you know? Um, but, but she was saying, yeah, but in addition to that, yeah, survival. But then once she gets there, like, what's her sort of like fantasy of like, if everything went right for her, um, what would that look like? Um, and that's, that's a question I often use in my creative writing classes. I say to my students, if all your characters' dreams could come true, what would that look like? And then what, what is the gap between that and the reality that they have? And there's conflict um, right there. Um, and, and I thought about this idea of the new woman, you know, there's sort of a big deal around the turn of the century, this idea that like women were going to come into their own. Um, and the difference between how Pearl might imagine what that might look like, as opposed to like Margaret Sanger might imagine how that might look like, you know, or a, a suffragist might might imagine how that would look like. Mm -hmm. um, so that was really fun to explore throughout the book. And again, you know, I think the beginning of, of, of a book really has to kind of set those wheels in motion so that the reader is sort of knowing what to watch out for as they continue throughout. Absolutely. Um, and it needs to be, so I, I like this, that you, you're asking your students, okay, this is what they dream, but what does that look like? Because that forces it into more concrete terms mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and, and more away from abstract terms. And so Pearl here has a very specific idea of, of what it looks like. She has this image of the new woman. Um, mm -hmm. And it would be difficult. And I, you know, your initial thought was, okay, she wants to survive. She wants to get away from the Cossacks, but that's in her history. That's mm -hmm. what she's running from. And I'm always telling my students, well, what, okay, you've got what they're running from, but what are they running towards? Because right. what they're running from is not going to give you enough of an engine for a whole book. That's going to sputter out and you need to get, what are they running towards? Yes. Um, and so that here is, um, is working really well. I also wanted you to go back. Um, you do these, these senses revisions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that because most writers, particularly American writers these days, 
focus only on the visual because we've become such yes. a filmic culture. Um, <laughs> and, and avoiding the more intimate senses because yes. sight is very far away. Um, but if you're talking about like smell and taste, you have to be very up close and personal to include smell and taste, particularly taste, um, mm -hmm. but smell as well. And so those sorts of more intimate sensory details push us, the reader, much closer to the experience than simply the, the visual. Um, so, yeah. you, and, I, and I also always think about Flaubert always talking about trying to touch at least three senses in every scene, but you're mm -hmm. trying to hit, you're doing revision for all five. And I, I love that. And that probably forces you to make sure, oh, I need to draw out this one, or I'm not paying attention to enough attention to this one. I mean, what's your, what's your process in doing that or, or, or your joy in doing that? Or what do you discover? So of the five senses, the visual, which of you're absolutely right, we are prejudiced towards as citizens of 2023 because our, our culture is so... Did you know we see more images in a day than our grandparents saw in their whole lifetimes? Mm -hmm. So we are so visually biased. But of the five senses, visual is um, outside of time. Like it's flat. The other uh, four are time bound and their process. So visual is picture, the other four are process. And process is inherently more exciting to a reader than a picture um, because it has past, present, and future. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't, um, I don't go through and I'm like, oh my God, every chapter has to have all five senses activated. If I only got four, I got to like slip in that fifth one or, you know, um, because I don't want to be like a kind of checklist. Um, but I also don't want to be something that I overlook. And, it, you know, all people, I, I sometimes I do this as an exercise. I say to my students, list the five senses. What was your one? What was your five? And so visual is almost always one, but not always. For me, five would be sound. I'm just not like a sound oriented person. On the other hand, my husband is very sound oriented. So we'll be, you know, we used to live in an apartment and he'd be like, oh my God, that noise coming through the wall. And I'm like, I don't hear anything. And he's like, what? You don't hear anything? How can you not, you know, you're not sensitive to my needs. And then like, you know, people get in a fight because they're oriented toward one sense more than to right. an another. So it's a great way to bring out characters to think about which sense they would be most plugged into. If you have a character who's like a gourmand, have them go to McDonald's, you know, and it's like, boom, <laughs> they're not very happy. You know, uh, someone who's more uh, sound oriented, put them in a place where there's like a really unpleasant, repetitive sound, boom, you've got conflict. Um, so there's so much that we can do with the senses. And as you say, the visual one, it's not that we should leave it out of our writing. It's just that we're already naturally putting it in. So now we have to almost overcompensate by thinking about the other ones and just checking in and making sure that we've accounted for them. And it's so interesting when you think about the other senses as process, because they're both something that we can make stop or we think we can make stop sound, smell. And so it encourages tension in that uh, issues of power. Do we have power mm -hmm. over where we um, where we're existing? Visual, not quite as much. Yeah, it, it is much more static. And it also, the other senses um, inhabit a, a place of yearning, I think, because, you know, the taste of a kiss or, or a particular sweet smell that we're always chasing after again, because it dissipates and it goes away, mm -hmm. um, really can get your, your 
characters moving, your your scene moving. I love thinking about it that way. I think that's wonderful. Okay, Aaron, I got it. We got to stop talking. I got to get these folks back to their uh, writing desks. But this has been wonderful. So everyone, you can find our full schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges, as well as on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast because that makes us look really popular and really cool and everything. Everyone likes really popular and cool things. And then other people will listen to it too. All right, Aaron, one last question. What's your advice to writers about their own first pages? Um, so I'd say just a couple of things I think have come through in our conversation, interestingly enough. Um, first of all, the beginning of a book is like a promise to the reader. It sort of teaches the reader how to read the story that you're about to tell. And so really think about what are those promises that you're making both consciously and unconsciously at the beginning? Are, are you making a false promise that doesn't get um, delivered upon as the book goes on? So really pay attention to what kind of promises you're making the reader and are they the kind of promises that you want to be making to the reader? Um, and then a word that's come up a lot during our conversation, motion. Mm -hmm. You know, How can we get our characters moving and doing stuff faster? I think sort of nothing kind of stops a story in its tracks more, you know, uh, you know, not, nothing does it more than here's the beginning. Now let me go into backstory about this character to catch you up on who this character is. You know, if you can weave it into a present day action, that's going to be much more effective in terms of getting readers going. And then after they've been with the character a little while longer, then you can start making some of those diversions into backstory to catch them up. Right, exactly. And so everyone, I think Aaron's book would be a great study to look at in terms of how to weave in backstory as the book is moving moving forward. All right, thank you so much, Aaron. I, I, I love this. I think a lot of this is gonna be really helpful to our listeners and everyone have a wonderful writing day. Thank you again, Aaron. Thanks so much. There isn't nothing here at all.